Hey, well, good morning, River City. Uh, welcome, uh, especially if you're, you're new here, you're visiting. Uh, man, we're just like so encouraged you're here. Uh, like Becky said, my name is Andy, uh, and I am a small group leader here, uh, along with my wife, Steph. Um, and like Becky said, like small groups are for everyone. So like regardless of like where you're at, uh, you should check one out. Uh, we actually host one that meets on Thursdays. So if you're interested, like come talk to me. Of like the seven that were up there or whatever, like it was clearly like one of the top tier ones. So uh, yeah, come talk to me. Uh, in addition to being a small group leader, uh, I'm also a web designer at a small agency in Des Moines called Juicebox. Uh, and we have two little girls, and they love that I work at a place called Juicebox. I think they think I actually design juice boxes, though. Uh, I don't know, maybe one day. Um, but I mention that because I'm not normally the one who's up here preaching. Uh, but I'm really grateful for the, uh, yeah, just like to be up here and speaking with you guys this morning, especially because uh, I've really enjoyed this Jesus on Every Page series that we've been in. Uh, so if this is your first time here, or it's uh, been a little while, let me give you uh, a little bit of background on that. So this summer we've been looking at a bunch of different passages in the Old Testament, and like some of them that you've probably heard of, and others that you probably haven't. And um, one of the things that I really love about this series is that we're learning how to read the Old Testament the way that Jesus taught his disciples to. Uh, that like it's not just like this collection of like old archaic texts. Uh, with like some fun stories thrown in that are meant to teach us about like what we should or shouldn't do or who we should or shouldn't be like. But rather like it's all pointing to Jesus. Like he's the one who's at the center of it all. And so uh, this morning we're going to be in one of my favorite passages of scripture, uh, looking at God's covenant with Abram, uh, or as he's later known as Abraham. Uh, so if you hear me say Abram or Abraham, it's like the same guy. Uh, just bear with me on that. But it's going to get a little weird this morning, so if, if you are new here or uh, you're visiting, uh, buckle up. You picked a good one. Um, yeah, so we're going to be in Genesis this morning, and we're very early in like the recorded history of mankind. Uh, but up until this point, like it hasn't gone great. Uh, in like the very third chapter of the Bible, like sin and corruption enter the world. Uh, and sin, it's like this incurable disease that causes humanity to want to go their own way to like run from God and listen to their own hearts instead. And we see the fruits of that in the very next chapter where we get our first murder. Uh, and then it just kind of keeps getting worse from there. Uh, and then in chapter 6, God is just like profoundly disturbed at the state of mankind. And so he decides to start over, to, to destroy the world except for one family. Uh, but this doesn't really seem to fix anything. Like hitting the reset button doesn't fix that problem of, of sin. Uh, and in chapter 11, then, we see, like, in this collective moment of pride, like, mankind coming together to build, like, this giant tower in the city of ba Babel, in Babylon, uh, to prove to everyone how capable they are. And God sees that they're on this path of pride and self-destruction, and so he confuses their language, and he forces them to scatter. And it's out of the dust of Babylon, then, that we meet Abram. And so... Abram, uh, or Abraham, he is one of the most important men to ever live. Uh, in Galatians 3, it says that the gospel was first preached to Abram and calls him the man of faith. And in Matthew 1, it says that Abraham, he is the, uh, the father of all Jews, including Jesus. And then Paul, uh, he kind of takes it one step further in Romans. He says that Abraham is the, uh, the father of all believers. So that includes you and me. Um, but when we meet him, he's just like some guy uh, like, there's really nothing special about him. What we do know is he's a, uh, he's a Babylonian. Uh, he's from a place called Ur of the Chaldeans, which sounds lovely. Uh, um, we know almost nothing about Ur other than, like, it was probably just, like, this small town in Mesopotamia. His family were likely Gentiles uh, who worshipped idols and made up gods. 
and he's old. He's like 85, and this is at a point that uh, when like people lived a little bit longer, but like he is definitely past his prime, and he has no kids, no descendants. Uh, he does have a wife though, uh, Sarah, and we know from scripture that she's really beautiful, uh, so that's nice. Um, <laughs> but she can't have kids, uh, and in this culture, that's a really big deal. Uh, because that means that Abram is a man who is incapable of making a name for himself. See, but God calls Abram, and we don't really know why. Like, Scripture doesn't say that he was like a particularly like righteous man or a particularly faithful man. Like, he definitely wasn't. Um, but Abram, I don't know. It seems like he was just like some dude from a town that nobody'd ever heard of, with a good-looking wife and like a lifetime of bad theology. But God calls him. In Genesis 12, he, he, he calls him to leave his family and his inheritance and his livelihood and to go and establish a new humanity. And he makes him this series of promises. He promises Abram that he's going to give him a son. Uh, he promises that he's going to make him into a great nation, that he's going to make his name great, and that everyone on earth is going to be blessed through him. And like, these are really great promises, but this is a hilariously bold request. Like, Abram hasn't even fathered a child, and now he's being asked to father a new nation. But he says yes. And as we fast forward through Genesis a little bit, we see him become like a little bit of a nomad. Uh, and he, like, he moves his wife and his workers down to Egypt, uh, but then he tells like, this really ugly lie, and he gets caught in it. They all get kicked out. And they're forced to like, wander the region of Canaan between like, all these Old Testament towns with like, hard-to-pronounce names. And then his nephew gets kidnapped, uh, and then while he's trying to rescue him, uh, he gets caught up in this war that's going on between these nine kings. And so Abram, he has seen some stuff. Uh, he's had some wins, and he's had some losses, and he's had uh, some moments where he's really demonstrated like a strong, incredible faith. But now as we move into chapter 15, we're going to encounter an Abram who is wracked with doubt. See, but it's in the midst of this doubt that God graciously meets Abram. And so this morning, uh, as we take a look at the way that God addresses Abram's doubts, what I want you to see is that it's God's unconditional faithfulness to meet his promises in spite of our doubts that enables us to truly believe. See, it's like it's in the midst of our unfaithfulness and our inadequacy that he becomes our great reward. Uh, so with that in mind, uh, let's pray, and then we will dive into our passage. All right. Uh, yeah, God, thank you that, uh, yeah, that we can be together here this morning. Thanks for... Yeah, just like filling this space and um, for what you're doing in all of our lives. Uh, as we dig into your word, I just pray that you would be glorified, that you would really really fill this place with your Holy Spirit, and um, that you would just use this time to show us who you really are, and that you and your gospel would just be made much of here this morning. Yeah. All right, so uh, Genesis 15. All right, after this, uh, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your very great reward. But Abram said, Sovereign Lord, how can you, uh, what can you give me since I remain childless, and the one who will inherit my estate is Eliezer of Damascus? And Abram said, You have given me no children, so a servant of my household will be my heir. And the word of the Lord came to him, This man will not be your heir, but a son who is your own flesh and blood will be your heir. And he took him outside and said, Look up at the sky and count the stars if indeed you can count them. And then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. And Abram believed the Lord, and he credited to him as righteousness. And he also said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to take possession of it. 
But Abram said, Sovereign Lord, how can I know that I will gain possession of it? And so the Lord said to him, Bring me a heifer, a goat, and a ram, each three years old, along with a dove and a young pigeon. Abram brought all these to him, and he cut them in two, and he arranged the halves opposite each other. The birds, however, he did not cut in half. Then birds of prey came down on the carcasses, but Abram drove them away. And as the sun was setting, Abram fell into a deep sleep, and a thick and dreadful darkness came over him. Then the Lord said to him, Know for certain that for 400 years your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own, that they will be enslaved and mistreated there. But I will punish the nation they serve as slaves, and afterward they will come out with great possessions. You, however, will go to your ancestors in peace and be buried at a good old age. And in the fourth generation, your descendants will come back here, for the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. When the sun had set and darkness had fallen, a smoking firepot and a blazing torch appeared and passed between the pieces. And on that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram and said, To your descendants I give this land, from the wadi of Egypt to the great river the Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, Cadmonites, Hittites, Perizzites, Rephites, Amorites, Canaanites, Girgashites, and Jebusites. Whew. All right, that sounds like a lot of great land. Um, <laughs> So as we unpack this passage, uh, what I want to walk you through this morning is the problem of Abram's doubt, God's solution to Abram's doubt, and then finally, like, what that means for us. Uh, Because, like, aside from all the weird stuff with the animals getting cut in half, uh, the main tension in this story is Abram's doubt. Like, you and I might argue here that, like, Abram is being, like, a little bit of an an ungrateful coward, you know? Like, God has already made him an amazing promise, and now he's getting cold feet, Like, Abram, you were a nobody, and then God chose you, and he made you some great promises, so maybe you just need to, like, suck it up a little bit. But I think we need to, like, cut him a little slack here, because, as I mentioned before, Abram has been through a lot. And in the chapter right before this one, at the end of, like, the civil war between these nine kings, Abram is faced with a massive decision. Uh, And so, like, in gratitude for Abram helping to, like, conquer a bunch of these other kings. So one of the winning kings or whatever, he offers Abram all the plunder from this war. And Abram is faced with this choice. Do I choose to follow God and trust that he's going to provide for me the way he said he would and trust that like, he's going to be the one to make me into a great nation? Or do I just take what's being offered to me? You know, it's not like against the law. It's just like me taking my own fate into my own hands for once. Uh, but Abram, he decides to turn the king down. And he declares that he's sworn an oath to God uh, to be his provider. And that he's not going to have like, anyone else out there being, uh, like, saying that they were the reason that he got rich. And maybe you've been in a situation like this where like, you were wrestling with making a big decision. Uh, for me, uh, back in February, I got laid off. Uh, and that, that really sucked. Uh, initially, I remember I felt like a lot of confusion and anger, and that kind of just like, slowly morphed into... like insecurity and fear. And like the husband and the father in me like was terrified. You know, like are we going to be okay financially? Like what are we going to do about insurance? You know, like what are people going to think? And I scrambled uh, like to put together like my resume and my portfolio and I started sending applications out. And after a few weeks I ended up getting an offer from a company that was like kind of in the healthcare space. Um, and it seemed like a, a kind of a cool company, like a mission I could probably get behind, and uh, I would have paid really well. But after doing uh, some more research and kind of like asking some questions, 
uh, I started to kind of get this inkling that like maybe they weren't helping people as much as what they said they were, and like that some of their methods for generating revenue were pretty sketchy. And I'm not, I don't think they were doing like anything illegal. Like I'm pretty sure they weren't like selling organs or anything, but um, <laughs> like the more I thought about it, I was pretty sure this wasn't the job for me. Uh, but I was really on the fence about it because like, man, a job is a job and we cannot all afford to be picky. But finally, uh, my wife, Steph, she came right out and said, please don't say yes to this. <laughs> and uh, so I turned them down. Um, and the moral of that story is, you can write this down if you're taking notes, uh, is to be wise like Abram and me. All right? <laughs> no, like, <laughs> no, like I'd, I'd like to think that most of you would have listened to Steph on that one. Um, and I'll come back to that story in a little bit, but like, the part where I most resonated with Abram during that experience was that I felt really good about that choice for like two days. And then the anxiety and the doubt started creeping in. Because after I turned them down, then I was just right back where I began. And then two more months had passed and I hadn't gotten a single other offer, like not even a bad one. And I was starting to kind of question, like, did I really make the right choice? Should I have said yes to that? You see, it is rewarding to say yes to God. But you know what else is great? Like having an income, <laughs> having, having benefits is really great, you know? And mind you, this was after a few months, but... For Abram, it has been 10 years since his original covenant with God. And he has been through a lot. He's seen his family get kidnapped. Like, he's been through a literal war. There has been so much camping. Like, <laughs> and he has absolutely nothing to show for it. Even though he's made this really great decision to say yes to God, like, his faith is rattled. You see, his moment of strong faith was not enough to stop doubt from creeping in. But we see here that God knows the state of Abram's heart and the anxiety that he's feeling, and he speaks to him in verse 1. Uh, he says, Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your very great reward. And like those words and the fact that like God seeks Abram out when he can see how, what he's going through, like that's really beautiful, right? And we can tell by the way that Abram addresses God here. He calls him sovereign Lord. And that's a term that, uh, as Michael uh, McKittrick, he pointed out last week, that, that's a term that indicates great reverence and like personal relationship with God. You see, like Abram, he wants to believe God here, but he's conflicted. He's thinking like, I know you're my great reward. That's why I just said no to this other thing. But you said that you were going to make me into a great nation and that you were going to bless me and make my name great. But it has been a decade and what do I have to show for it? You see, he calls him Sovereign Lord. And then he asks, how can I be sure you're going to keep your promises? He wants to believe God. Like, he needs some reassurance. And so how does God respond then? Like, what is God's solution to Abram's doubt? You see, like, the solution, uh, it tells us so much about who he is. Because the way he responds is not like, you're okay, Abram, you just got to trust me. And he doesn't say, like, how dare you question my integrity, Abram? No, it's like it's in the midst of Abram's doubt that God meets him with patience and gentleness. In verse 4, uh, he reassures Abram, and then it says that he took him outside, and he shows him the stars. And he reaffirms his original promise to Abram, not only are you going to have a son, but your descendants are going to be as many as these stars. Like, I haven't forgotten you, Abram. 
So he's not angry or impatient with Abram's doubt. He loves Abram like a good friend or like a good dad. He's patient and he's gentle. He's not upset with Abram for like needing a little bit more reassurance. He just gives it to him. And how does Abram respond? Like this is, this is crucial. In verse 6 it says, Abram believed the Lord and he credited it to him as righteousness. He believed. See, it wasn't Abram's original covenant with God that was counted to his righteousness, right? Or his decision to uproot his family or to turn down a bunch of money and power. It was simply his belief. And I don't want to skip over that word here because, like, I don't know, it's just so easy to misinterpret it because our, in our culture, like, the, the word belief, like, it can mean so many different things, right? Like, if I say I believe in Bigfoot, like, that means I think he exists. But, it, like, when the GM of the Minnesota Timberwolves got on the podium a few weeks ago and he said, we believe in Anthony Edwards, like, it wasn't because, like, when it comes to basketball, they were going to give him $250 million for merely existing, Right? Like, the kind of belief that we're talking about here is not merely, like, intellectual agreement. Like, if I say I'm going to throw a brick at your head and you believe me, like, you're going to duck, right? I won't do that. I would never. Um, you see, like, true belief is transformational. It changes the way you think, and it leads to a change in action. And so when it says that Abram believed the Lord, it doesn't just mean that he agrees that what God is saying here is true. It means that he's trusted that God is who he said he was. That he knows that he's incapable, but he believes that God is fully capable. This is what it means to have a faith in God. But the takeaway here is not like, let's all have a strong faith like Abram. Because like Abram's faith, it is not perfect. And like, we see that. Like in literally the next verse, he asks God, how can I know? You know, like it says he believes, but he still doesn't know, right? He's still not sure. He still has doubt. See, it's not Abram's like wobbly, conflicted, like needing to be reasoned with faith that's credited to his righteousness. No, it's the object of his faith. This has nothing to do with the strength of his faith. And God's about to show him that now by making a new covenant with him. And uh, here's like where things get really weird. Uh, so in verse 9, God tells Abram to prepare a special ceremony. He tells him to get a bunch of animals and to cut them in half and like make this sort of like gruesome, like bloody aisle. And we don't, uh, we don't do this today. Um, but at the time, this would have been a really weird request, or this wouldn't have been a really weird request uh, because we have like ancient texts and they show us uh, that like, they talk about like an, an ancient like Canaanite culture, like how when two kings were making like a deal or an agreement with each other, they would perform like this kind of blood oath with each other. And so they would kill the animals and they would uh, divide them, and then they would walk down this line together. And it was a way of saying, if I don't keep my word, may this be done to me. And so Abram asked God how he knows he's going to keep his promises. Like, how do I know you're not going to change your mind? That you won't, like, lose your patience with me or give up on me? See, it's in making this oath that God is showing Abram that his promises aren't riding on him. They aren't riding on his faithfulness. They're only dependent on his. He's saying to Abram, like, you can't mess this up. Like, my faithfulness, it doesn't rely on you. And my plans for you, like, they might not be according to your timing, but my faithfulness is perfect. And I would rather die than go back on my promises to you. 
And as the rest of the book unfolds in, in, in Exodus, we see that God does keep his promises to Abram. Like he gives him a son, Isaac, and Isaac uh, gives birth to Jacob, who ends up being like the father of the 12 tribes of Israel. Uh, and then after like 400 years, God gives them all that land that's talked about at the end of the passage there. Uh, and that's really great, right? Like we can be happy for Abram. Like you got your kid, you got your land, like good job, bud. Uh, we have a nice resolution there. But like, what does any of this have to do with us? Like, what does this mean for us? Because as far as I know, like, most of us are not Jewish. Uh, and this land is long gone. But I hope it's really clear that, like, Abram isn't the only one that struggles with doubt. I mentioned earlier how uh, I lost my job about six months ago. And like I said, it is not a great time. Like, getting fired rattles you. Like, that confusion and the anxiety and, like, that dread that you feel, like, in your stomach. And... And like job hunting is the worst, especially when you feel like you're racing against the clock. And like I knew we had a little bit of like a financial runway and like maybe like 10 weeks until our insurance was going to run out. Uh, but man, like time just moves so weird when you're unemployed and you're looking. And like applying for jobs is so much like of just like hurrying up and then waiting. You know, like you scramble to get like your resume together and write these cover letters and send out these applications. And then you just kind of sit there refreshing your email for like weeks and you don't hear anything. And it gets to the point where like, you're welcoming a rejection letter, because at least it means somebody saw your application, and you're not invisible. And that's good news in that moment. And like, every Monday, you have like, a little bit of hope that like, this might be the week that, that I find something. And then like, Friday comes around, and I just feel like this complete failure all over again. And man, I spent like, a lot of time praying about it. And I am so grateful for Steph, and for like our friends here in this community here at River City, and especially our small group, but it was through other believers that I was constantly being reminded of God's promises, that like He is in control, and that like my value and my identity and my worth, like those things aren't dependent on like the status of my employment or the quality of my resume. See, but doubt is so real. You know, in my head, like, I knew that this would very likely, like, lead to something even better than what I had before. And, like, I knew that we'd probably be okay and that this was just temporary. But in my heart, like, I don't know, like, I kind of wondered if God was punishing me a little bit. You know, like, he actually knew how I felt. It's like, Scripture says that, like, God knows the time and place of all man. But I kind of wondered if I was just kind of, like, lost in the shuffle. You know, like a resume that's just buried in a stack with a hundred other applications. So what do we do about doubt? You know, like when we know that God promised he'll provide, but it's been three months and some days you're just not sure anymore. You know, or like someone you love is sick and just nothing feels good or in control, even though God says that he is good and in control. Maybe your doubt just comes in the form of like, how could God still not be done with me yet? You know, how has he not given up on me? What could he possibly want to have anything to do with a sinner like me? See, when we encounter a world that is unpredictable and uncontrollable and volatile, and then when we explore our hearts and we realize that our, they're no better, man, like, how could God be any different? You know, doubt, it feels only natural. You see, and it's, it's times like this where it's such good news to experience a God who is patient and gentle. And even more importantly, like Abram, a God whose faithfulness is unconditional. Because Abram isn't perfectly faithful. Uh, and spoiler alert, like, Israel does not come close. And neither do we. 
And our inadequacy, it's not just limited to doubt, right? Because like, like Abram and Israel, like we are called to be ambassadors for God as Christians, to say yes to him and to worship nothing else, to be blameless and spotless, that like our lives and our actions would be a testimony to God's glory. And but like Abram and Israel, we love to go our own way, and like especially when things get hard. And if anything, like this invitation to be God's people, that kind of just feels like an impossible burden. And so we find ourselves just worshiping things like power and approval and comfort and control. Like these are our made-up gods. We constantly fall short. And God has promised to bless us with salvation and an unmatchable inheritance, like all these beautiful things that come from belonging to God, like provision and identity and security and purpose. But like if these things are contingent on us holding up our end of the deal, like we are completely screwed. And like we are no better off than these animals being prepped for slaughter. Because I don't want you to miss this. This passage doesn't just point us to our own struggle with sin and doubt. Like it foreshadows God's solution to our doubt as well. Let's go back uh, to verse 10, uh, to this horrific uh, like aisle of blood and guts. Um, so Abram, he diligently prepares the scene. Uh, and it says he even like drives away some birds who are like trying to get a free meal out of this. And then it says that he falls into a deep sleep. And it says, a thick and dreadful darkness came over him. And that phrase here, that literally means a darkness of terror. And Abram is terrified. And God has put him into this like, state of like, conscious unconsciousness. And he is just absolutely petrified. Unable to handle like, the sheer dread and horror of what's occurring in front of him. So, like, this is no longer gentle reassurance. This is something else. And this might just be like speculation or whatever, but like if I'm Abram, I'm thinking like I'm probably about to die, or maybe I'm already dead, and now we're doing this. Um, like maybe I doubted God one too many times. Like maybe I should have just shut my mouth and said thank you. And now I'm about to experience like the fully unrestrained wrath of God. See, but that's not what happens. We, we see that God speaks to Abram, and he tells him what's about to happen. And he lays out like many of the events that we see in the rest of Genesis and then Exodus. And, and then he appears as a smoking fire pot and a blazing torch. And this language is a little confusing because we don't have a lot of those things lying around our houses. Um, but it's used elsewhere in Exodus to describe God's physical presence. Uh, so like the, the pillar of smoke and then the pillar of fire that led Israel out of Egypt by day and by night. And then, like, the smoke and fire on Mount, uh, Mount Sinai when God descended on it to meet with Moses. Like, these, uh, these, these, these flames and these sm- the smoke, like, this is all descriptions of God's physical presence when he shows up. And so, this flaming torch and the smoking fire pot, that's God showing up physically in this passage. And then it says he passes between the pieces, and he declares to Abram that if I don't keep my promises, may I be cut off from life. See, this is God signing the contract. That he would rather die than break his promises. But then here's where this really weird situation gets even weirder, because when it's Abram's turn to go, he doesn't. Like, he doesn't do anything. It just says in verse 18 that the covenant is complete. And that's because this covenant is different. This is a one-way covenant. See, when God walked down that aisle by himself... He was declaring, if I don't keep my word, 
may this be done to me. And if you don't keep your word, then may this be done to me as well. You see, this isn't just a covenant between Abram and God here. No, this is built on the covenant that's in uh, Genesis 12. And that means that it, it extends, this contract extends to you and me too. And it also extends to the promises that God has made us. And God has made us way better promises than what he made to Abram. Like, he doesn't just vow to give us some land or like some sort of temporary home. No, like he's promised that he's with us, that we're forgiven. You know, like he's promised that he's preparing for us an eternal home. And in John 8, uh, Jesus says that your father Abraham, he rejoiced at the thought of seeing my day and he saw it and was glad. See, Jesus was talking about this day, this day that Abram believed. He's talking about this because he's the one who fulfilled this covenant completely. The one who fulfills this covenant is Jesus. Like he's the one who held up our end of the deal. It was the midst of our doubt and inadequacy, and unfaithfulness. He was perfectly faithful. And at the cross, when the sky turned dreadfully dark, he was the one who was cut off from life. Made to be like those animals that lie on the floor back in Genesis. In that moment, he experienced God's fully unrestrained wrath. The anger, and the judgment, and the condemnation that come from betraying a holy and perfect God. See, it's not just that God was willing to go to any lengths to keep his word. He actually did. Because you were incapable of holding up your end of the deal. And so he did it for you. He's the one that followed through and that the cross became our shield. And through his resurrection became our great reward. He did it all. Like, and so you can't screw it up. Like, that's great news. Like, your job is just to believe. And so, like, these promises that God has made you, these promises of salvation and inheritance and identity, like, none of that is riding on the strength of your faith because it was sealed by the object of your faith. It was sealed by Jesus. And so you can be sure that he hasn't given up on you. He hasn't abandoned you. He hasn't forgotten you. When you look to the cross and you see God's perfect, unconditional faithfulness to keep his promises, like not only is that the thing that like drives out doubt, but like that's how you can begin to truly believe. And so as we move into communion, that's what we're remembering. God's perfect faithfulness to keep his promises to you and I. In communion, it doesn't make you right with God. Like it is not credited to you as righteousness. Like it is certainly not us like upholding our end of a deal. Rather, it's a chance for us to remember his body and his blood broken and shed. Like holding up our end of that one-way contract, paying the price for our sin and unbelief, and demonstrating the lengths that he'll go to to make us right with God so that we can actually believe. So if you've trusted in Jesus as like your shield and your great reward, you can go back and take communion. Uh, there's a couple tables in the back, and you can dip the bread in the juice. But if you're here today and you haven't placed your faith in him yet, like, man, we are so glad you're here. But, like, hold off on taking communion, because God is not after some sort of, like, religious ritual or, like, a head-level belief. Like, he longs for something so much better and so much deeper than that. 
And so communion might not be right for you this morning, but Jesus is, and you are welcome here, and we would love nothing more than to help you get to know him. And so as we sing and we worship, like talk to him. You know, some of you, you have doubts like Abram. Like, you believe, but like your circumstances or your sin, they cause you to doubt God's faithfulness or like his nearness to you. And in those moments, like, remind yourself of who God is. You know, remember that he's patient and he's gentle. I think sometimes when we read the Old Testament, it feels like we're worshiping like two completely different gods. You know, but know that you worship the same God who in the midst of Abram's doubt just lovingly put his arm around his shoulder and took him outside and showed him the stars. The same God who a few thousand years later showed patience and gentleness to Thomas, like the king of all doubters, right? When he refused to believe the news that Jesus had risen from the dead. Like Jesus wasn't angry. He just showed him his hands. He invited him to touch the wound in his side. He's not annoyed with your doubts. And so the application then isn't to work on your doubt or the strength of your faith. Like, it's to fix your eyes on Jesus. Because you can't fix your doubt on your own. Because it's not a head issue. It's a heart issue. In his book, uh, Trusting God, uh, Jerry Bridges says that trust is not a passive state of mind. It is a vigorous act of the soul by which we choose to lay hold on the promises of God and cling to them despite the adversity that at times seeks to overwhelm us. And I feel like I've already talked too much this morning about like, my spring adventures in unemployment land. But uh, yes, God did eventually provide me with a job. And it is great. And the girls love the name of the, my employer. And uh, the pay is good. And it has benefits. Um, and I'm really thankful. But the biggest thing that God showed me throughout that process wasn't his ability to provide a job. Like, rather, it was when the world felt completely out of control and I felt so unsure about my value and worth that I was able to see most clearly how God had met my biggest need. Dude, that when I, when I was running from God and I was on a path of pride and self-destruction, that he declared that I was somebody worth rescuing, someone worth dying for even. And so I can cling to his promises. Like I can find rest in knowing that this is not my home. You know, this is only temporary, and what he's promised is so much better. You can find peace in knowing that he hasn't given up on you. He hasn't grown tired of you. And that with God, like you're never lost in a pile on his desk. So when you fall short, when you are unfaithful, or you're just like wracked with doubt, like lay hold and cling to the promises of God. And look to the cross. Remember the length that Jesus is willing to go to make you right with God to uphold his end of the deal and yours. Because it's only then that you can truly believe and joyfully embrace the calling to live as one of God's people. And then like in the face of adversity, when things are very hard, like you can still say yes to him. Even when it feels like he's leading into a risky situation, like talking to your neighbors or like talking about Jesus, even when you're around like your family or your non-Christian friends. Not like a judgy or like a self-righteous way, but like sharing how God is meeting you where you're at. You know, like how in the midst of your uncertainty, how God is showing you his perfect faithfulness. For some of you, maybe that's not what God's calling you to here this morning. Like maybe you resonate with this idea of doubt, like doubting God, but like the difference is that you haven't believed in the first place. 
Maybe the gospel is intriguing to you, but it's never gone from being like a head thing to a heart thing. Like, maybe, like you believe that God exists, right? But like you've never declared him as sovereign Lord in your life. And so you've never had a faith that's changed you in any sort of way. And I want to be clear with you, like that is not doubt. That's just unbelief. But the good news is that Jesus is longing to meet you in that as well. So we take communion, talk to him about that. Like ask him to show you the extent of his faithfulness. The length that he's willing to go to to hold up your end of the deal. Whether you're wrestling with doubt here this morning or you're just wrestling with straight up unbelief, like my hope for you is that you would see that his faithfulness is perfect that it's unconditional, and that you can't screw it up. He always keeps his promises. Because it's when you see that that you can actually start to really believe. Let's pray. Yeah, God, uh, thank you for being a father who is patient and gentle, and thanks that like, you always keep your promises. And like, even when we're stuck in our sin and doubts, that like, you are willing to go down that aisle alone. And that like, you were willing to carry your cross alone. And God, we pray this morning that you would just give us like, a glimpse of your glory, that you'd help us to see your perfect faithfulness, and that you'd help us to truly believe. And in those moments when it feels like everything is just like wrong and out of control, that your spirit would be reminding us of who you really are, that we'd cling to your promises, and that as we remember your perfect, unconditional faithfulness, that you would build in us a belief and a faith that's able to overcome any amount of doubt. Amen.